Longtime listeners of this podcast know that we have a drinking game. Anytime Shags talks about its height or I say I'm a pilot, you got to take a drink. Paddle Don came up with it. So today, get a bottle ready because all we're talking is flying. I'm Brandon Butler. I'm Nathan Shags McLeod. And I'm Jonathan Adams. Welcome to the Driftwood Outdoors podcast. If you've always dreamed of finding a special piece of outdoor recreation property in the Midwest, you don't need to look any further than Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. With hundreds of land listings available, Living the Dream Outdoor Properties has that special hunting, fishing, camping, or farming property you're looking for. Living the Dream Outdoor Properties isn't just for buyers. If you have a property to sell, Living the Dream makes the process super easy and brings to the table their huge following of prospective buyers. With the land market on fire right now, Living the Dream will bring you the offer your property deserves. When it came time for me to sell Driftwood Acres, there was no question I was going to work with Daryl Heinemann and his team at Living the Dream Properties. Their professionalism made the process a breeze. And they brought me multiple offers in the first two weeks. After my personal experience with Living the Dream, I can tell all of you with confidence that this is the real estate firm you want to work with for any land deal. For more information or to contact Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, visit livingthedreamland.com. That's livingthedreamland.com. Our friends at Mongo Attachments know conservation doesn't happen by accident. Over the years, they have helped transform thousands of acres of land into valuable habitat for wildlife. With the use of Mongo Attachments, landowners, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and contractors have restored, improved, maintained, or built from scratch incredible wildlife habitats. Mongo Attachments is an industry leader in attachments for small and mid-sized excavators. They have a wide array of attachments designed to meet your land management needs, including ice and root rippers, land clearing rakes, hydraulic flail mulchers, forestry head mulchers, hydraulic tilt grading buckets, and tree shears. Mongo sets up every attachment for your machine specs so that all you have to do is hook it up and go to work. If you have land that needs work, get the right tools for the job from Mongo Attachments. To learn more about taking land management to the next level, visit mongoattachments.com. That's mongoattachments.com. Turkey season is one of the most exciting times of the year. Nothing fires me up more than a gobble shattering the pre-dawn darkness. This year, I'll be chasing turkeys with a CZ Reaper Magnum. The CZ Reaper Magnum is built to slay turkeys. It's an over-under with 3.5-inch chambers. The shorter 26-inch barrels make it more maneuverable in the woods or a blind. The included Picatinny-style rail makes adding optics simple, and it comes stock with QD swivels in the front and back for adding a sling. Like all the firearms from CZUSA, which now includes the entire Colt line, the Reaper not only functions properly, it looks great doing so. The polymer stocks are completely clad in camouflage, upping my turkey slaying stealth game even more. For more information about the CZ Reaper Magnum and all the fine firearms from CZ USA, visit czusa.com. That's czusa.com. Chances are you know how important hunting is to conservation, and you likely recognize the incredible hunting heritage we have in America. What you may not consider, though, is how important hunting is to our economy. That's why we are proud to partner with Hunting Works for Missouri to promote the strong economic partnership 
between the hunting and shooting communities and the economy of Missouri. Hunting Works for Missouri sheds light on the economic impact hunting has on our economy. Since its inception in 2012, I've proudly served as a co-chair of Hunting Works for Missouri. Our membership consists of businesses representing a cross-section of the Missouri economy. These include sporting goods retailers, restaurants, hotels and resorts, gas stations and convenience stores, and of course, all the taxpayers of the state, hunters and non-hunters alike, who benefit from the license fees, taxes, and jobs the hunting and shooting industries provide. To learn more about Hunting Works for Missouri, which is a program of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, visit huntingworksformo.com. That's huntingworksformo.com. Big shout out and thanks to everyone who's taken a minute to review us online. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done it yet, we ask you to take 30 seconds and go do it today. Like, share, rate, subscribe. Let everyone know how much you love this podcast so we can keep doing it. And be sure to follow us on all the social media platforms. Driftwood Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook. And keep submitting those mystery bait bucket questions. You can email us, info at driftwoodoutdoors.com. Or again, just find us on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook. Hope you enjoy this new podcast. The Driftwood Outdoors Podcast with Brandon Butler and Nathan Shags McLeod. So, Jonathan is one of my partners in my airplane, and I thought it would be a fun podcast just to bring him on here. Not a huge outdoorsman, but definitely one of the best pilots I've ever met. And the opportunities to involve flying into what you enjoy doing, whether that's outdoors or just travel, is so much easier than people think. I always dreamed about being a private pilot, but like so many other people, I thought it was just too high of a hill to climb. When in reality, it's it's very doable, especially if you can find a good club to get into like I did. And really, this podcast, it, it emphasizes outdoor activity, but realistically, we just like sitting down with interesting people and having interesting conversations. And I'm honestly surprised it took 120 plus weeks for you to figure out a way to talk nothing but flying for an hour. <laughs> well, we, we had a, a club meeting the other night and that uh, that spurred my interest. Uh, Jonathan's kind of the uh, unofficial leader of our club. He's definitely uh, way, way more knowledgeable about flying than I am. What hunting and fishing is for me, you know, a lifelong passion, that's what flying is for him. My family took me hunting and fishing when I was little, and his dad took him flying, and he has taken it to a whole nother level. They make fun of me. He, he said something funny the other day. He's like, you won't fly for months, and then you're like going to Canada, <laughs> where they like get on. They fly all the time. You know, he's got his own plane, too. I'll let him talk about it, but he's that crazy dude doing flips and rolls and wearing a parachute when he's up there and offers to give me a ride and I say no thanks man (laughs) well I asked for a parachute when I got in with you for the first time and you said it wasn't available well you probably should wear one because I can't see out the window (laughs) when you're in the plane so you know it's uh, put you two in the plane and it won't get off the ground Now, to start this podcast, we definitely have to get through some of our stories. A local tie, one lucky player won $7 million after purchasing a scratcher ticket at the Gerbs on West Broadway in Columbia. Somebody in Missouri won a million last night. That that makes it seem like it's you. You know, you, you get to the Powerball drawing, and then you got to wake up and see if anybody won. And then where did they win? So that 
600 million or whatever it was was split between a California ticket and a Wisconsin ticket, but somebody won a million in Missouri. And I'm like, you know, that would still help a million dollars. That would help a little bit. So I got real excited. I'm like, I'm narrowed down to one in 6 million now. In Boone County alone, $29 million was awarded in lottery prizes. Wow. Last year. I won 10 the other day. I was super, <laughs> super happy about that. You a lottery player, Jonathan? I am not, man. I, I'm against it. Not against it, you know, from a habit standpoint, but against it because I just think it's a total waste. It absolutely is, unless you're the person that wins $600. Oh, yeah. It's the redneck retirement plan. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid in Indiana, um, we didn't have lottery, but Illinois did. So my grandma would drive to Illinois twice a week to buy lottery tickets. She was so sure she was going to win. Like, so sure. It was just a matter of time. Play the same numbers every week. Eventually, they're going to hit. Well, it's the most exciting part is when you're picking out your numbers or you're buying the ticket. It's like what we talk about when I go to all these banquets and I'm buying all these raffle tickets and like the endless possibility. I'm going to win it all. I got three guns. I'm going to win a crossbow. I'm going to win it, win it, win it. And then as the night progresses, you just realize how much of a loser you are because you go (laughs) home with nothing. But it's that moment of excitement of buying that ticket and just the endless possibility of this could be the one. This could change my life. Inside, we're all like Cooper. We just want to cry. <laughs> we don't get it. <laughs> Poor Cooper. My eight-year-old nephew went to Whitetail's Unlimited Banquet, and there was this little gun that he wanted so bad, and he didn't quite grab the concept that the ticket he got wasn't a winner, that there was other people that were in the drawing, too. So when he didn't win that first one, he had a bit of an eight-year-old meltdown on not being able to go home with the, <laughs> with, with the big prize. Yeah, getting him started early then. Yeah, I, I always used to laugh. I, I worked uh, at a car dealership with my dad growing up. And uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest in St. Louis. So very wealthy owner. But every Saturday he went and spent a hundred dollars on lottery tickets. And it just, <laughs> it just always cracked me up. I'm like, you, you got it made. What? But then again, what's a hundred bucks to him? So it's like the people that just keep funneling money into slot machines. Yep. It's that addiction of maybe I'm going to win this time. Maybe I'm going to win that time. I probably don't spend $50 a year on it. I'm that person that you know, forty million isn't worth my time. <laughs> what would that do? That's so the mentality <laughs> that cracks me up. Yeah. When people are like, "Oh no, not till it hits 600 I'm like, "Because twenty's not good." Twenty's not going to change anything, but it is worth it to me to spend two dollars to have a couple of days of. This is what I'll do if I win. Well, that's why I brought it up because just seven million dollars alone. What's the first? Now we all get about. We all know that be responsible. You pay off your debt. You know, you help some family out. But what's that first guilty? guilty purchase that one thing that now you got you got some millions of dollars in your bank account and you can just write a check for pretty much anything what is it oh gosh i mean i want to say an airplane but i mean it's probably a ridiculous sports car that i don't need <laughs> I, I long before i help family out because the family i'd be helping out would be multiple generations down the way i would instantly just be ranch shopping just how many acres can I buy for $7 million? And that's what I would be. No, yeah. Daryl would probably be one of my first calls to try to get some property somewhere. Yeah. Daryl Hyman. Yeah. Living the dream. Sammy driving dream. fence lines in my Lambo. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the Ferrari. Where, 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 Road hunting in the Ferrari. Jack it up. Four-wheel drive. Yeah. Four-wheel yeah. drive Ferrari. Like you've you seen those, uh, the stingrays when guys put four-wheel yeah. under them. Yeah, that'd be me. That'd oh, be cool. That is, yeah. I'd be back down in probably the Ozark somewhere, down in Arkansas or something on the White River. Wait a minute now. You got $7 million. I would definitely buy something in the Ozark, 100%. 
Really? Yep. And then I'd and then I'd have something back home on the Oregon coast. I try to get a couple of different properties that I could just bounce around in. Nope, dude. I'd be on Jonathan's jet out to Montana or even up into Canada. Maybe go down to Mexico and buy a hundred thousand acres. Some just ridiculous spread. I'll be the Mexico Batman. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he makes fun of me. I don't know. Do you watch Yellowstone? Oh man. Are you ate up with it? I, I mean, who doesn't want to be ripped, man? Yeah. I make fun of it because I think Kevin Costner sounds like Montana Batman. Because he's like, <laughs> you're an enemy. Hey, I'm man. an enemy. We're enemies. Yep. <laughs> so that's what he's making. He was going to be Mexico Batman down there. Being rip is, is pretty cool, you know, in the sense that he's now eating in the big house. But I, I talked for a long time about, like, the frustration of being rip. Oh, sure. In the sense that, like, you're the one that he can count on 100% of the time. You're the one that's going to get the job done, no matter what it is, yet his idiot kids are getting all the spoils. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, weirdly relatable. I'm just that guy that generally is the one that gets stuff done, and I'm just like, I don't know. He's that guy. He's that right-hand man. You know, he's the rock. He's solid. So, But who wouldn't want uh, to be Dutton? I mean, yeah, you want to be Dutton so you can have a rip. Right, right. You want to have a rip to, like, replace your idiot children. Yep. <laughs> but you talk about you talk about ranch shopping. I mean, that, that right there, um, you know, country boy at heart, not a huge outdoorsman, like you said, but, you know, the ultimate dream would be having enough land that I can ride a horse for a day and not hit the end of it. Right. Go camp on your own property, find new stuff every year. You didn't even know it was there. I mean, that, that'd be the dream. In today's world too, I don't think Montana's the place to do that anymore. Not with $7 million. It's not. Oh, no, gosh, no. You've got to no. go like Patagonia down in Argentina. Oh, yes. That would be good. Be I rewatched, right I just rewatched all of the old Dexters. Because um, the new Dexters came out, which mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of. I mean, just absolutely love the new ones. I think they're doing an amazing job of bringing that show back. But in the old Dexter, I forgot that when him and Hannah got together at the end, the dream was to go to Argentina. Like he was going to Argentina with Hannah and Harrison. Harrison and Hannah end up down there. Spoiler alert: Dexter does not. But Argentina, man, that's a. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on Patagonia lately. Chase some golden dorados, man. That's on the bucket list. That's where. Uh, that's where I want to go. Just chase freedom, like. Everybody that I know that's been down there says that Patagonia, Southern Argentina, like Southern Chile is, it's Montana from 150 years ago. There's still just, like Jonathan said, you can get on a horse and and ride forever. There's one road down there through Southern Chile and it's uh, gravel. Like there's no interstate and there wasn't even a road until 1976. I'm telling you, dude, I'm deep diving on YouTube on. I'm telling, I'm sold. I've been telling you about Argentina and going trout fishing and chasing them golden Dorados for, for quite a while. It's kind of like, it's kind of place and completely enhanced by having an airplane. Same as Alaska. Like if you're going to be in Alaska. So that was part of the, getting the pilot's licenses in preparation for whatever badass place I end up living in my older age since I'm so middle-aged right now. <laughs> well, you're talking about like the old wild, wild west. We can now fast forward to 2022 where Utah has now just banned the fourth state now to ban trail cameras during deer season. Pretty sure that's in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> Thou shall not trail use cameras, cameras in the woods. <laughs> yeah, they have to have like the, the sergeant or whatever they call the leaders check the trail cameras first. <laughs> or they can't just have one. They have to have multiple cameras out at once. <laughs> 
But you also posted a, a link uh, kind of along those same lines about Boone and Crockett releasing a statement about technology and hunting. And I went through it and read it, and I don't really feel like it was much of a statement. It kind of was just like, yeah, don't use too much, guys. I mean, they're in a weird spot because they're trying to police an industry that essentially funds them and supports them as well as individual donors. But I talk about it quite a bit. I mean, the deer are not evolving nearly as rapidly as the technology we're using to kill them with. So now you take pictures of it, which I love trail cameras. I do a lot of, a lot of trail camera work. It's just so much fun to uncover what's out there. And I do think when used properly, it allows you to, to build confidence in the opportunity to take a more mature buck. So it'll allow some of those smaller ones to pass because you're like, well, I'm waiting for these three that I've seen. But when it gets to the point that people are like naming the deer and essentially making them like their pets and and then hunting them down and killing them, that to me that takes like the the surprise aspect or the oh my gosh, look at that buck! I've never seen that buck before. That takes that out of the equation and it it does help. I mean, let's be honest. You know, if you can start patterning these deer with cameras and then sit in a treehouse and shoot it at 300 yards with a rifle. I mean, it's not what Tecumseh and, and Geronimo were doing. No, for sure. But I, I always liked Uncle Steve's quote that a trail camera never got me a deer. It always just told me where I should have been yesterday. That's true. But I mean, again, you hunted out there. That's a little bit different, that type of country, because it's harder to pattern those deer than it is, let's say, a Midwest whitetail, where you can really get, this is the bedding sta- This is the bedding area, this is the staging area, this is the feeding area, that type of thing. But I don't know do how you I, think we're going to get to an all-out ban? I hope not. I, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think they're too much fun. People enjoy them too much. And I, I don't think they're really hurting hunting. You know, I, I think... Some of the laser sights and and things like that are are more advantageous to easier kills of deer than a trail camera is. I would argue the trail camera has made me a more particular deer hunter where we talked about growing up as kids. Like if it had antlers, it was going down. Like you were excited just to see a buck and you're going to shoot it. And now with trail cameras, it's like you pass on some of those younger middle-aged deer because you know there's a nicer mature buck out there. I think you got to draw the line at places like drones, and I think everybody's kind of on the same page with that. You can't be sitting in your tree stand and throw a drone up and go check the different fields to see where the deer are. You know, that's that's cheating in my book, but a trail camera, not so much. And finally, I made a post on Facebook, Driftwood Outdoors, about a huge great white shark, 15-foot-long female that had a massive bite in the size the side of her. Like, it was the whole size the whole side of this foot, 15 foot long, great white. And I can just tell by the look on your face that you're already uncomfortable. And that's kind of why I posted it because I knew you would have, it would be nightmare fuel for you. But reading the study, apparently during, uh, coitus, their mating season, males will get a little more aggressive and kind of like get over here and just, they won't take a bite, but they'll latch on. And apparently that was just from a larger great white male I guess it's great white hickeys. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess if you can't say no, <laughs> I don't know what their no means no is in Sharkland. But so I, I know Brandon's number one animal fear are yeah, sharks. Just my phobia. I don't know what the word is for being afraid of sharks, but I am. Hundred percent the same, man. Really? I was going to. That's ask what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask being outdoor, like you know, walking through the woods at night, all that, and no, doesn't bother me. You know, sure doesn't bother you guys, but. 
you know, the, the, the thought of open water is absolutely terrifying to me. hundred percent, hundred percent. Those guys that are stuck out there drifting in a lifeboat. Oh, oh. Man. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with having a, a solid understanding of like the predator prey mentality, being a predator myself and, and hunting down prey species, knowing that I am now the prey Yeah. in this water that I have really no skills in. Like I always joke that you, you bring a 15 foot, great white shark onto the beach i'll fight it all day you know when it's on my element land but in the water man you're nothing but a, a snack well what's your biggest uh what's your biggest land animal uh concern probably a grizzly bear bear snakes. i mean snakes snakes all around snakes for me bad. i don't i don't do well with snakes you can survive a rattlesnake bite though but, uh, you know an 800 pound grizzly bear mauls you there's a good chance you're what, dead what about some like if you got in the wrong position with a wild boar i mean they're will dangerous. they pursue you yeah oh, oh I, they're mean i was confronted by a wild boar down down in southern missouri like it yeah. was a standoff or it was sitting there stomping and snorting i mean i thought it was going to charge me i was going to shoot it it was turkey season. sure but it was uh it was very aggressive and i've heard of them being that way before uh milo was with me he saw it too and it was uh, it was eye opening that a pig could be that aggressive towards me. Oh yeah, because yeah, the my fiance is always concerned about black bears. She's just uh, got a bear phobia, and when we're down there fishing, and when especially when Brandon had his cabin, I was more concerned about coming across boars because they're just so unpredictable. Generally, black bears are really skittish, and they don't want anything to do with you as long as you don't come up on a couple of cubs and a mama bear, but them hogs are so unpredictable that you just don't know what you're going to get. And they will, they'll chase you down just to torment you, just to mess with you. The rule of thumb on bears is a grizzly bear play dead, you know, play dead, cover your vitals and hopefully it'll walk away and, and eventually think it's going to come back and eat you later. A black bear attacks to kill. So if you're getting attacked by a black bear, fight back. If you're getting attacked by a grizzly bear, play dead. Yeah, because a grizzly is territorial, too. He likes to be the king of the mountain. So if he doesn't like you in his territory, he'll just beat the crap out of you and leave you in a pile after a while just to show you that he can. I might watch Jonathan fight a black bear, though. They're about <laughs> He's a big-ass dude. Dude, that'd be fun. <laughs> we could start, like, a new circus event. Yeah, I, I saw that you were jealous on Big big Buddy Friends. I brought my, my buddy Rob Hewlett with Hewlett House MMA over last week to do the podcast, and Butler was like, all right, I'll show you. I'll bring bring my my big bud. That's right. <laughs> You're not the only one with big, jacked-up friends. <laughs> so what kind of sidearm would you carry if you were in bear country? I used to carry a 357 Magnum, which isn't as big as some people would. Um, I've got a 40 caliber now that I might carry, but you know, a 44 Magnum is kind of the go-to for folks—a revolver. Sure, sure. Well, for those of you that don't know, I'm a pilot. I'm drinking. Drink, everybody <laughs> drink. Uh, but it's been a while since we've talked about it. It's been a, it's been a minute, and. I did just have this meeting with Jonathan and our other club members, which was exciting because uh, we did add two more members to the club, but that gave us kind of an infusion of cash that's going to allow us to put an autopilot in, which is going to be sweet for those longer trips, you know? And these are all the things that like, I don't know anything about, which is what's so fun about having friends that, that do know a lot about it. So I, I thought it'd be fun to have Jonathan come on, talk about his lifelong passion of flying and really just encourage other people to take a look at it you know i'm really excited now bailey's interested my my 16 year old wants to get her pilot's license now which i think is super cool 
and I want to help her do it. How old do you have to be to do it? Uh, you can uh, you can solo at 16, but you can't get your private pilot license until you're 17. So I could get her started on lessons now? I mean, I think you could. I, I don't think there's anything that says you can't be logging hours prior to 16. I'm not super familiar with it, but the... Uh, but I mean, you take me, you know, I grew up flying. So I, you know, I had hands on the controls from a young age. You know, there's, there's no, uh, legality associated with letting a kid fly the airplane. As long as, you know, you're sitting next to him. It's not, not like a car where you can just, you can't let them just jump on your lap and cruise down the highway, but in an airplane, uh, you know, as long as it's, safe you can do it that's why shags didn't want to have a kid he can't drive him home from the bar i'll say my dad wouldn't even let me drive the 1988 chevy celebrity when i was 16 there's no <laughs> way he's gonna trust me with a plane <laughs> well so kind of tell us how you got started i mean obviously i was later in life but you this has been a lifelong thing yeah sure so i uh you know my dad was a private pilot um obviously by the time i'd come along so he uh he started flying in the 70s you know in his early 20s you know, I don't, I don't know if I've ever asked him exactly what made him decide to do it other than, uh, you know, he's a mechanically inclined guy, you know, kind of like me into cars, into motorcycles, all that stuff. And then, um, just got interested in airplanes and, and we lived in St. Louis at the time and he started flying out of a, a field in, in North St. Louis. And, um, you know, so he got his private in the seventies and then, uh, I come along in the eighties and every weekend, you know, we were what we call airport bums. You know, we'd go out to the airport, hang out, mooch rides or with, with friends or, or uh, you know, just hang out in the hangars. And there's a really neat airport up in St. Louis. Uh, it's in Creve Corps. And it's, I mean, it's like a community. Any given weekend, all the hangar doors are open. Everybody's got really cool antique airplanes, warbirds, aerobatic stuff. It's just a mecca of cool aviation. And uh, we'd go out there pretty regularly. And dad had a lot of friends, obviously, as a pilot. So... We'd go out there and walk around, check stuff out, talk to people, you know, people would be grilling. And um, it was just kind of how I grew up. And then uh, we'd go to air shows quite a bit, you know, anything local, we'd, we'd hit an air show. So dad did a really good job of just keeping me entrenched in it. And uh, I just, I fell in love with it from, you know, a very young age. It's funny, you know, just being home for Christmas, dad's been digging through some, some boxes, pictures and all that. So every time I come home, there's new pictures of me, you know, in my bomber jacket at two years old or me sitting in the cockpit of this airplane or that airplane. So, you know, he just, he entrenched me in it. Did you guys have a plane? Did he own a plane at that time? You know, we never owned one, but, uh, he had quite a few friends that did and he had free range on a few of them. So we, uh, we take a lot of trips, a lot of weekend trips. When I was real young, we had a boat down to Lake of the Ozarks. So we'd fly down, we'd make a day trip out of the lake because the lake out of St. Louis, you know, it's two and a half hour drive or so. So we could buzz down there in an hour, a little over an hour and, and, uh, be on the boat within two hours and go out for the day and then fly home. So, uh, you know, that was kind of how I grew up and he never bought into one. And then by the time I was probably 10 or 11 or so, you know, as a pilot, we have to have a medical, which is basically a glorified, uh, physical exam. And there's a whole laundry list of medications and all this stuff you, you can't take. Stuff that's not even that big a deal, but to the FAA, there's some underlying issue. So, uh, you know, at some point, Dad got on some medication that kept the medical from being uh, an option. You know, then life happened, and then we moved out to Washington, Missouri, and the uh, community wasn't as big. And, you know, just it's easy to uh, to park it, and once you park it, you know, it's 
hard to get back into it when it's when it's just a hobby. So uh, didn't do much flying, you know, as a teenager and got into college and I had a uh, decent paying job at the time. You know, I was framing and going to school for mechanical aerospace engineering. So I I was doing it from a curriculum standpoint and then as a hobby. So where'd you go to school? Mizzou here in Columbia. So I uh, I started flying out of Columbia Airport. I don't know how many hours I logged a handful of hours, didn't have the best flight instructor and then uh, transitioned on to Jeff city flying service and finished up with those guys and had a really good experience with them. And, um, so I got it knocked out when I was probably about 21, I think. And explain uh, what hours means. Yeah. So, so unlike driving where it's, well, actually now I think driving, you do have, I think there is a logbook associated with driving now. I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong, but, um, you know, with the FAA, there's, there's a laundry list of, of rules. Well, it's more than a laundry list. It's massive, but there's uh, a whole bunch of rules and, and, and regs that define the requirements to get your private pilot's license. And, uh, you basically log your time, you log your hours. So, uh, the minimum bare minimum requirement to get your private is 40 hours. And there's a bunch of different ways you can get there. But you got to have 40 hours in the book. I think I was like 76. Uh, I think the national average is somewhere between 60 and 70. So that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, it kind of depends on, uh, you know, how fast you do it. You know, if you stay entrenched in it, you know, otherwise, if you're just kind of here and there once a month, twice a month, you know, it's really easy to do two steps forward, one step back. Actually, that's, uh, that's one of the biggest things I recommend to people is, if you're going to do it, um, you know, lay out a plan and financially, if you can, if you can have the money in the bank and have a plan, uh, it, it makes it much better. If you try to do like I did in college where, you know, you, you work for, you know, you, you go frame or you go work in the bar for the weekend just to be able to fly an hour or two. It takes a long time to get her done. I mean, it took me probably a year and a half to get it done. Um, but I still, I still did it in low hours. It just took me a long time calendar wise. It's another one of those things that there's a lot of overlooked scholarships for though. There is like younger people that are interested in doing this. You can look for scholarships from local flying clubs. Um, major companies have flying scholarships. So that's a little tip for people on average. How much does it cost to get your license? Uh, you know, so I did mine in, um, 2010, and I calculated it at one point. I, I want to say I had like six grand in it. I always tell people it's it's very safe to say it'll cost you less than ten thousand, more than six thousand. Yeah, I would say ten is uh, not an unfair number right now. The uh, the cost of everything obviously, like everything else, is going up. But the um, uh, you know it cost me about six back then. But I will say, being that I grew up around aviation and got to fly a lot with with my dad and his buddies. And I, you know, I had a lot of stick time. I understood airplanes. You know, I'd been flying flight sim 95 since I was 10 on the compact Presario. So I, uh, I've got a lot of time logged in that Learjet, but, uh, it doesn't count towards anything, but, um, but I fundamentally understood airplanes. It's funny. Dad actually found a, um, a report that I wrote in fifth grade on how airplanes fly. So if that tells you anything about it. Well, let's hear it, man. Cause there are so many people that just look at an airplane and they're like, how does that piece of metal fly? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you ever seen the, uh, the meme that floats around and you know, it shows the airplane and it's got an arrow up, down, forward and backwards. And 
it says uh, lift, you know, so up is magic. It says forward is money and down is gravity. Anyways, it's kind of comical. But the, uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's, you know, you're moving an airfoil through the, through the air, um, you know, and the airfoil is the shape of the wing. So uh, as it moves through the, the air, there's a pressure differential, you know, higher pressure pushes up from the bottom of the wing and airplane goes into the air. So it's, uh, it's a combination of, uh, wing design, wing shape, and then, uh, and then speed moving it through the fluid. So it's simple, but took a long time to figure it out. Yeah. So you guys tease me about not, you know, practicing a lot. I've got about 200 hours now and I, I honestly feel like it's very much like driving a car. I know how to do it. Um, I'm not going to fly and you know this because I, I get grounded all the time when I make plans to fly. I'm not going to fly in weather that's even considerable uh, to be what they call inclement. Like I'm not even going to, if it's gray out and it's still like a legal day for me to fly, which we can talk about in a second, what constitutes that I'm not, I'm not risking it like on weather, but if it's just a nice day, the winds are mild to non-existent, you know, you take off on the runway at, you know, at 60 miles per hour, you pull back and the plane goes in the air. And then I do everything I can to keep it straight <laughs> and in the air and, and, and not bouncing <laughs> around. All right. This dude's up there doing loop de loos and stuff. And I have no interest in that at all. I just want to get from point A to point B in an in exciting yet economically advantageous sort of way. And that's why I like to fly. Uh, for him, it's a sport. Yeah, I mean, it's a passion even. I mean, like I said, growing up, you know, we were airport bums. And still to this day, you know, I uh, if I don't have anything going on or I'm just hanging out at the airport, fun for you is going fishing. Not that I don't mm-hmm. like fishing, but if you have free time, you're going to go fish. I will literally go sit out the airport at, at my hangar and pull out the the picnic bench or a lawn chair and um, and just watch airplanes come and go. And, you know, guys hit the gas pumps. You'll come up and talk to them. It's kind of like... You guys do much boating at the Lake of the Ozarks? Oh, yeah. You know, there's it's like a community, right? Yeah, you, oh, for you, sure. You can meet a guy on a gas dock at the Lake of the Ozarks and, and start BSing, and 10 minutes later, you're in his boat going to his lake house and partying on his dock. Obviously, airplanes, you know, you don't associate with partying, but, you know, a guy can roll in, hit the gas docks, and you can go up there and be like, man, you know, I've... I've never been in a, you know, whatever, you know, a monocoupe or a Piper Cub or whatever he came in. And nine out of 10 guys, especially guys that, you know, have the cool antique old stuff, you know, a bunch of them would be like, well, you want to, you want to go around the patch? Jump you wanna, in, man. Let's go. I'll take you up for a second. And it's just cool. It's just a community. It's uh, most guys just genuinely enjoy sharing it. And um, that's a big part of why I love it. But the, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I go out and I just hang out at the airport. You're a point A to point B kind of guy and there's nothing wrong with that. You come to your thing, you go home. I just hang out at the airport and yeah, it makes my fishing better. I mean, think about it. it you're right. If I have an opportunity to have free time, I'm, I'm likely going fishing or hunting. And now we're talking about buying a place down at Bull Shoals so we can have the boating, the fishing on the reservoir, the fishing on the river, or some other rivers to float and stuff. And it's about a four and a half hour drive from here, but I can get in the plane right here and be in uh, Bull Shoals an hour and a half. Gaston's is 150 miles. We'll be there in two weeks. Yeah. And that's, so that's it. And Clint is a good friend of mine. I know I can, we're looking at a lot on that road. Yeah. So we're talking about building within walking distance of that strip. So I can fly down there, park my plane, walk to my house, 
go and fly back home. Yeah, I saw you guys did a podcast on Gaston's, or, or the White River, I should say. Uh-huh. And Gaston's is obviously a resort there on the White River. Yeah, there you go, your, your whiskey glass. The um, I'm not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, It's keto-friendly, you're all right. There are no carbs. <laughs> no carbs at all. What's sugar alcohol? So anyways, the... Uh, Growing up, you know, flying with dad, we would take a, a Cherokee six down there and, um, you know, it's got a beautiful grass runway. It's like 3000 feet long, maybe even longer. It's one way in one way out. So some newer pilots are a little hesitant with that, but it's 3000 feet. I mean, they take twins in there you should be just fine with most training airplanes, but, uh, you know, it's right on the white river. And, uh, you know, they got the, the cottages or whatever that you can rent. They got the restaurant. So coming out of St. Louis is I don't know, hour and a half flight or so. But as a kid, we'd buzz down there and uh, you could go down and they had a gravel beach right there. And, and as kids, we'd, we'd swim in the river and hang out and we'd eat lunch and we'd make a day of it. And then we'd buzz back home and it was just cool. We never did the whole rent the boat, go fishing thing. But one of my good buddies is a big, big trout guy and he keeps beating me up to go down there. So I, I need to get him and, and, and go down for, for a day or a weekend and and get out on the river. It's definitely a, a major stop on the $100 hamburger tour. Yeah, yeah. Explain to people what that is. So the $100 hamburger is, um, you're always looking for somewhere to go, especially if you just rent an airplane. You, you get kind of bored with just going up and buzzing around for an hour over the same, you know, 20, 20 mile radius. You know, it's the same houses, the same roads. So you're always looking for a reason to go somewhere, a destination, something. It's like when I used to ride motorcycles, you know, you're always looking to, to go somewhere, uh, get a group together. Let's, you know, let's go here or there, bar hop, whatever. So the same thing with the airplane, you're always looking for somewhere to go. So if you can find an airport or an airport that's close to a, a nice restaurant, it's a destination. It's a reason to go get lunch. So we, you, like Jeff City's got that beautiful restaurant down there in the hangar. So guys out of St. Louis, you know, it's a 45-minute flight. It's a trip. You know, it feels like you're doing something. You get to go fly. You fly the river. It's scenic. You buzz into Jeff City. You eat lunch. You hang out. You fly home. Well, lunch only costs 25 bucks, but the fuel costs <laughs> 100 plus. So there's your $100 hamburger. Is there a new <laughs> restaurant in Jeff City now? Yeah, they, uh, you know, the... Because um, Nick's was so good. Yeah, it, it, I don't... It's not Nick's, I don't think. It's, uh, I think they call it the landing zone, actually. And I don't know who, who's affiliated with it or, or anything like that. It may be the same people. I'm not sure. I haven't eaten there yet. Uh, it hasn't been open too long. But, but the building, the hangar, it's, it's, the restaurant's above a hangar. And it's, uh, it's a really nice setup. They got a big uh, deck out there and everything. So you overlook the, the ramp and the runway. So it's, it's a neat setup. But, um, oh, cool. I didn't know that happened. But yeah, you know, and so Gaston's is uh, a perfect example of the $100 hamburger. You know, it's a great destination. It's an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hour flight. There's another place called Hangar Cafe. It's down towards like Joplin, maybe just outside of Joplin and uh, big grass strip. And um, they've got a, uh, what do you call the old hangar? Quonset. Oh, a Quonset hut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's really nice. It's, it's done up real well and, and uh, they call it Hangar Cafe and, uh, yeah, so guys buzz down there. Is there any really di- any real difference from landing on a grass strip in a con or pavement like a normal Ooh, airport? He, he can tell you about a twenty five thousand dollars story. Well, because I, I mean, we go down to Gaston's and you're like, oh, look at the airstrip, and I see this giant green grass field. I'm like, I don't even fly, and that looks intimidating. Um, so there's reasons for it. Um, you know, obviously everything started on grass. I mean, you know. 
your your World War One, you know, all the old airplanes, you know, they were all in grass. You didn't really have paved runways back then. Um, but uh, you know, most guys are going to choose pavement if they can. But tailwheel guys and antique guys, which generally you can associate antique with being a, t- a tailwheel means there's two wheels up front and one little tiny wheel in the back. We call them a tail dragger. So it's it's everybody always generally knows what a Piper Cub is. So, you know, the Piper Cub sits on the main gear, the tail sits down low. They're just a little more difficult to control. Not hard, just different. It's like what you see in Alaska. Those bigger wheels up front, they come in and land on those yeah, like the bars bush and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And uh so those guys tend to like grass. It's a little more forgiving. So a, a tailwheel airplane when if you if you get uh, messed up on landing, if you're not, you're not on it and you get a little bit of a side wind or, or a crosswind, I should say, or, or you're not quite lined up right, a tailwheel airplane wants to ground loop. I shouldn't say it wants to, but it, it can. And that's because the weight's behind the front wheels. Right, here, I'll give you a good uh, analogy. You know the shopping carts at Lowe's, you know, the, the big flat shopping carts? If you're pushing really fast or like a dolly, you're pushing a dolly, it wants to come around on you. That's what flying a tailwheel is like. The, the, it always wants to swap in. So you gotta, you got to be diligent. you got to stay on it. And, uh, but if you're on the grass, if you get that, that crosswind or that gust or, or you're not quite lined up or you know, something happens, the airplane will slide on the grass. You know, the main wheels will slide. So it's, it's more forgiving. So if you get that side load, um, the main gear doesn't dig in and cause it to want to spin around. If you get on pavement and you get that side load, you know, the gust or whatever it causes you to, uh, to side load the main gear, that tire is not going to slide and it becomes a pivot point. And when the airplane ground loops, if you have any speed to it, it tips up onto that wheel and then you dig up, you dig a wing tip into the ground, you bend wings, break wings. It's not fun. So, so a lot of the guys that fly the antiques, they fly the, the tail wheels, stuff like that. They, they, they like the grass. Another thing, you know, the grass is more forgiving on wheels or on, I shouldn't say wheels, tires, you know, pavement, you're taking a tire that's stopped and you're putting it down on pavement going 70, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, depending on what kind of airplane you're in, maybe a little slower even. Um, so you take it from nothing to pretty quick. And these things are only, you know, six, eight inches in diameter. So it spins them up fast. So, so it barks the rubber off them. You land on grass. It's a little more forgiving on the tires. So, so there's, there's advantages to it, you know, and there's disadvantages too. <laughs> you know, Brandon just mentioned a $25,000 story. <laughs> so, a little bit of mud and dip in the runway. Got yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm not a high time pilot. I, I, I think I've only got like 550 hours or something, but you know, been around it forever. And that's just in the log books. You know, I fly, I fly more than that, but the, um, my other airplane outside of uh, the one me and Brandon own together, it is a tailwheel. It's an aerobatic airplane and most aerobatic airplanes are tailwheel. And, um, classic story of, um, not paying as much attention as I should kind of in a little bit of a hurry to get out and go fly, you know, after work one afternoon, wait, you know, sunset and trying to get out there. Our, our airport in Fulton has a beautiful grass runway. And normally if I'm going to fly off the grass, I'll drive my pickup truck out there and just make sure that it's dry and solid Cause you know, it can rain over there and not here and you don't know it. And, uh, anyways, I was in a hurry. Didn't do it. I'm taxiing out. I wasn't going to take the grass, but I looked at the windsock and it was right down the grass runway. I was like, whatever, I'll take the grass. So I'm taxiing and I didn't look up 
And uh, by the time I looked up, I could see standing water on the runway on the, or on the taxiway, on the grass taxiway. And there's a bit of a dip that comes off of the pavement and then a little bit of an incline that goes up into the grass taxiway. And I'm like, oh, man, the uh, taxiway's wet. So I, I started getting on the brakes pretty good. Well, if you get on the brakes too hard on a tailwheel airplane, remember, uh, remember doing endos on your, uh, on your BMX bike and breaking your wrists. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what can happen. You jam the brakes on a tailwheel and it's, the tail's going to come up. The prop hits the ground. It's, it's a bad story. So I'm getting on the brakes pretty good. So the tail starts to levitate. No big deal. Used to that. Right at that time, the tires leave the pavement and go into the to the mud and there's a, just enough of a swale right there that it just holds and it's muddy as can be and the tires just stick and the tail comes up and I'm watching it and I'm like please don't hit please don't hit and I pull the mixture which is the you know it's the mixture control so it shuts the fuel off to the engine I pull the mixture because trying to hopefully keep the engine from from uh, being damaged and yeah I just started seeing mud fly and the props going through the mud and I was like oh man so that was a uh that was a just just annoying mistake, <laughs> expensive annoying mistake. So what it did is, you know, it bent his propeller, which means that it could have messed up the interior engine. So you have to have that all examined and fixed. And they're very very strict, the FAA. So for him to have made this mistake, it wasn't like you just take it back to the hangar and put it away. It has to be checked and yada yada yada. And and there is nothing cheap about airplanes nothing no and and you can't work on your i mean within reason but you can't do major work on your own yeah no matter how mechanically inclined you are you know there's regulations on um, what a an owner and uh, operator slash private pilot can do it's all defined by the by the faa and um, that is definitely outside the scope of what you are allowed to do so you get to pull the engine off and send it out to a a facility and have them check everything out. You know, they tear it down, put it back together. They check everything, measurements, and make sure nothing bent, broke, cracked, whatever. And and uh, they called an IRAN inspect repair as needed. And then the same with the prop. Prop has to be repaired because the the prop tips went through the mud, hit a rock, curled prop tips. So the prop had to be overhauled, and it was a whole to do. And airplane's still not together because I've turned it into a miniature restoration. Because I'm like, well, I've got it this far apart. I might as well keep going. So. And there's a lot of like technological advancements that are required on airplanes now that didn't used to exist. So you've got to upgrade your plane to that. But that said, it's it's not horribly expensive to get into a plane uh, that would fly well. Like our our Cessna 172, it's 1966, and I think we've got it valued at what sixty thousand or fifty something thousand. Or- yeah, I, I think it's insured for for fifty ish and. Um- you know, up until this year, um, you know, that was pretty fair. I mean, it's not honestly anymore. It's no worse than buying a used, you know, five-year-old used pickup truck. I mean, Jesus, pickup trucks are $80,000 now. It's it's insane, but the purchase price is never the issue. And that's what I tell a lot of people when they want to get into it is, you know, getting it bought. It's like a boat, man. You know, if you're in a boat, it's like getting it bought's no big deal. It's the maintenance and the having to keep it up that that'll get you. And, um, uh, you know, the, with the club that we're in, you know, obviously I kind of run point on a lot of the maintenance stuff and I've made enough friends in the area that we get stuff done pretty right. But to somebody that's not savvy or not super versed in what has to be done versus what a mechanic tells them they should do, 
you can get nickel and dimed really bad. So it's, um, it pays to be, uh, pretty versed and educated in, uh, in the maintenance of the airplane if you're going to own one. But that being said, buying into that club was the best thing I ever did. Cause I, um, I hadn't flown for years. You know, it's one of those things. It's just like I was telling you about my dad. It's just easy to hang it up, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. And then the thought of getting back into it's daunting. And so I, uh, you know, after I got my ticket, my license, um, you know, I flew for a couple of years, did the rental thing, but the rental thing's boring. You can't go anywhere. You can't keep it overnight. Well, you could keep it overnight, but then they want to charge a minimum amount of hours. And it's like, well, you know, I just want to fly home, you know, hour away, big deal, but take people for a ride. So it just doesn't feel free. But when you buy into a club or you buy your own airplane, it really opens up the freedom of aviation. And it is it is as cool as it gets, if you ask me. Yeah. So for me to buy into that plane, it was seventy five hundred bucks to buy a share. There was five of us. Now there's seven of us. Um, but if you think about that, I bought in for seventy five hundred. That took off the rental cost of getting my private license. So I invested into that plane instead of renting. And if, if you don't count that 7,500 towards getting my license, then I probably spent maybe 4,000 on the lessons and the instructor time and everything that came with it. So you can buy into a club like that. Boonville has one. Uh, Does Columbia have one? No, Um, they, they have a, they have a rental airplane, maybe two. It's been a while since I've been over the FBO, but Honestly, I think we have one of the best, one of the best setups economically. I mean, it's, it's pretty inexpensive and a a darn nice airplane for, for what it costs us to fly that thing. Yeah. And and then, you know, you're a part owner and and you've got a license. So it's a lot of fun. That being said, like if we get this place down in Bull Shoals, I would love to be able to fly down for a week and come back. So, you know, maybe getting my own plane here in the near future or something that I'm going to look into, but I'm scared because of exactly what he's saying. I don't feel like I have a, a good enough understanding of maintenance, nor do I have enough money to just turn it over to somebody and, and make them just do whatever needs to be done to make it right. I kind of mooch off him right now. It works out really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the biggest thing is, you know, you, you got to stay educated and, and, you know, all I do is read, you know, granted I do it for work too, but the, uh, you know, I just read up on stuff and I, I follow a lot of Facebook pages and I'm kind of familiar with what some of the common issues are and I stay up on those areas so it doesn't snowball and and it works out. But, uh, but yeah, it can bite you if, you if you're one of those that just does the bare minimum kind of, you know, we're subject to an annual, uh, annual inspection. So like when you buy your car, you go get your inspection sticker and all that. Who knows how thorough those inspections really are, but ours go through a a significant inspection. I mean, you open it all up, take all the inspection panels out, take the interior out. You really look it over. And that's why we're still flying a 1966 airplane that large in part is, is still in great shape. You know, it's, um, the upkeep is the maintenance and the upkeep is, uh, it's very regimented. So So if you look at our plane, which is a 1966, 172, and let's say you can buy it for 60,000 in today's market, but you look at a 1996, 172, and it's $400,000. Like, what are the differences? Like, what, what makes that plane so much more valuable? You mean, a brand, did you say a brand new one? No, like a, even a 96 or something. Anything from the 90s is hundreds of thousands. Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the 2000 time frame, you're, you're in a couple hundred thousand dollar airplane probably. And, 
you know, a brand new one. I haven't looked at it in a while. But they're like brand, a million bucks. They're they're like a half a million for a one seventy two. But the, um, you know, if you strip it down to the the fundamental flying characteristics and and controls of the airplane, it is the same airplane. I mean, it's the. Um, I won't say it's the same dimensionally, but it is ignorantly on the ramp. No one's going to physically tell the difference. If you threw a brand new paint job on ours, which ours only has a, like a 10 or 12 year old paint job. So ours is sharp. It looks, it looks new. And a lot of guys walk up to it and they're like, man, I thought this was, you know, 2000s airplane. So a, a $10,000 paint job really did it good back, back handful of years ago. But, um, the newer airplanes, there's not a ton of new technology as far as like engines and stuff like that go. It's the same stuff. You know, it's not like we introduced, you know, all sorts of crazy electronics and, and fancy computers. The avionics is no doubt worlds apart. We're flying what we call steam gauges. So round dial gauges, uh, all analog and um, nothing, nothing sexy. You know, the new stuff is like flying a computer game two screens generally maybe three even you know mfd pfd uh you know flight displays and it's literally like playing a video game you 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 follow a course and you fly through boxes and you know there's just it's tons and tons of information and it's displayed exceptionally well and i i'll never knock technology there's a lot of old timers that you should be able to fly by looking at the railroad tracks it's like that's fine i there's a place for that but um you can't stand in the way of of technology either and which we get around a lot of that with an ipad and a 99 dollars subscription to ForeFlight. what you can do with a thousand dollar phone and and then we obviously have to have that separate box the little stratus box which is you know another six seven eight hundred bucks which is cool like you can look at your phone or your ipad on this app and it shows like every plane in the air and you can see like, oh, that's a United Airlines jumbo jet at 36,000 feet traveling at 500 miles an hour. Uh, and then, oh, no, here's a plane that's at 3,000 feet and I'm at 3,500 feet. Like, I got to pay attention for that one. And you can see them coming and going. And, and how, how, too, how close is too close when it comes to, what is that, 1,000 feet, 500 feet to another aircraft? Yeah. Well, that's, there's, I'd say there's multiple uh, things that go into that answer. Um if you're in a what we call the pattern, right? You're 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 at an airport. You're flying a you fly a rectangular pattern around your runway. Everybody's doing the same thing. So, if you're in that environment, a quarter mile, a half a mile, you know, a couple thousand feet, no big deal. I mean, me and my buddy fly wingtip to wingtip. You know, we're we're less than fifty feet apart from each other, but it's a coordinated event. We talked about it. You know, yeah. Here's what you're gonna do, here's what I'm gonna do. This is what happens if something goes bad. If you're flying along and uh, you know, there's a guy out there and you see him on the screen and you feel like he you know, you're making radio calls saying, Hey, I'm in the area and he, he you know, no one's deviating course, you know, it's like, okay, well at that point, if I get within a mile or so, if it's another airplane like mine, like type, you know, another one seventy two, we're not going very fast. We're going hundred miles an hour. Um, so if, uh, or, you know, maybe a little faster. That is frustrating though. Like you get on top of I-70 and you're flying along and it's like, damn it, that car's going faster than me. (laughs) It happens sometimes. (laughs) But you know, there goes Jonathan in the sports car. (laughs) Yeah. If you, uh, but if you're around another airplane that you don't think knows you're there, because not everybody has this technology. Um, if you're around another airplane that doesn't know you're there, you don't think they're paying attention, then, you know, it's time to start paying attention with when you're within a couple miles, miles, start looking like, hey, you know, are we in a collision course? You know, And if you are, you just kind of change your direction. 
but the amount of information you can get from your iPhone now with with apps like ForeFlight and and the uh, the Stratus that gives you the weather and the local traffic if they have the right equipment on board, it's just incredible. I mean, two thousand dollars worth of equipment, and and your 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 awareness is just insane. I mean, that's probably twenty years ago. That's probably a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. I mean, you're talking TCAS and everything else, which is just you know, it's uh, radar-based uh, systems to, to locate other airplanes, and it's just, um, it's wild. It's wild what you can do with a phone. So talking about that and, like, the the possibility of collisions, and, I mean, anytime you hear about airplanes or private planes, a Terrace and Ford crash landing for the third time on a golf course, or it's the guy landing on the highway outside of Kansas City because there was an issue, no one ever writes an article about Jonathan landing safely at the airport, you're only hearing about the the scarier parts. Have you had any close calls or anything like that, or have you had to put it, put it down in in some weird place? Um, I've never had any. Um, I've never had any what I would call emergencies. What you would declare emergency? Uh, I have had close calls, um, and and we here. I'll give you one of them. Um, I fly out of a lot of what we call. Uh, untowered, uncontrolled, uncontrolled is really not the right word usually, but untowered airports. So, you know, you're not talking to a tower. You're not getting clearance to depart. You're not, you know, it's, it's every man for himself and you're making radio calls. You know, this is who I am, where I'm at, what I'm doing. Um, there are rules out there as to how you're supposed to operate in those environments. Not everybody knows them. Not everybody follows them. And sometimes, you know, people aren't paying attention. So I'm at a fly in, um, couple years back and uh there's a big crest in the runway it's a grass runway and they have a real nice fly-in once a year but there's a, a big big crown to the to the runway so you can't see the other end of the runway well i get in line with everybody else go down to the to the north end i'm going to depart to the south you always the the rule is if if you can take off into the wind you should take off into the wind Gaston's you always can't because it's one way in one way out because there's a mountain but you know if you have the opportunity to take off into the wind that's what you should do so I you know I'm following everybody else and we're going down to that other end and we're all taking off to the south I line up I go you know I make my radio call you know uh decathlon 11680 departing you know runway 18 southbound whatever and uh as I'm coming up over, I was actually with Darren Dinger on this, by the way, which was your flight instructor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Iron Mike. So Darren Dinger's in the back and, and I'm, I'm flying, you fly the decathlon from the front, it's tandem seat. And, uh, right as we're starting to crest the hill, I, I'm, I'm just to the point where I'm, the airplane's about ready to fly, which also means I'm at the point where if I had to shut it down, I'm real close to, could I get it stopped? It's not a super long runway. And all of a sudden, about the same kind of uh, position is an ultralight. So an ultralight is a lesser airplane, if you will. I mean, it, it's, I'm sure you've seen pictures of them. They look like a kite with a motor on it. It's like there's a go-kart with it's a kite a strapped kart, to it. go-kart with a, with a sail wing on it. And, you know, it's generally rainbowed colored. And, and you don't have to have a pilot's license. You're not required to have a radio. They're generally kind of frowned upon a little bit i would fly one i think they'd be a blast but the people that fly them you know kind of have a reputation sometimes in certain areas but they're not required to have a radio and and don't get me wrong the airport i'm departing there's no requirement legally to make a radio call you don't have to have a radio 
However, he departed on a runway that was going against the wind and against traffic that was all going clearly to the other end. So right as I crest the runway, he's lifting off, I'm lifting off, and we're staring at each other. And I got Mike in the back going, whoa, 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 airplane, airplane. <laughs> and there's a tree line right to the right of the runway. Normally, once the airplane's flying, you know, I, I, I fly pretty spirited. I have no problem yanking and banking low to the ground. I normally would have just, you know, dog-legged it off to the side of the runway and went on my way and waved at the guy, no harm, no foul. I didn't have that luxury. I have a tree, a tree line. And a tree line on the other side starts about halfway. So luckily he shut it down and I don't know how close we got. I mean, it was feet. I went over the top of him. He went under me and and basically landed and came back around. But that's probably my closest call ever. And um, I don't want to put blame on anybody, but I'd have to say that that was his fault. He should have known that everybody was favoring the other runway. So that one was ugly, but I've never had an engine failure or anything like that. So is Harrison Ford just a bad pilot? Because he's literally <laughs> crashed like three times. Oh, he's a fantastic pilot, actually, and and a huge aviation advocate. He uh, he does some really good things. And, um, uh, you know, I've honestly never really studied. I don't nerd out too much on studying the airplane incidents and accidents. The uh, Some guys really get into it. It's kind of armchair quarterbacking to me. Um, I'll read some of them. Some of them you can learn a lot from, actually, as a pilot, but... You know, I don't know enough about what all happened with his. You know, he flies some exotic airplanes, too. I think the one he put in the golf course, I'm pretty sure it it was, if it wasn't experimental, it was at least an antique. And, you know, you're talking old airplanes, 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, old technology. It's like like having a, you know, 1940 Harley. You know, there's, (laughs) they're not the most reliable thing out there. So your Model T may break down on I-70. It it might. So. I think that one, you know, he, he actually had a, um, he had some kind of a mechanical failure. He did have one where he landed on a taxiway and, and, and that, and he was at a big airport and, um, you know, that was just a bad deal. That was unfortunate because it, it, you know, that one hit the ego, but, uh, we've all made I mean, mistakes. If you can fly the millennial. Falcon. Yeah. I was going to say, probably, right, I shouldn't right. probably question Han Solo's piloting. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, we've I all mean, made, it's a light speed. <laughs> We've all made silly mistakes and you sit there like me with that prop strike. You know, I sat there, I analyzed the heck out of that for weeks and I'm like, man, just that was dumb. And it was dumb. I should have just slowed down, taken my time. And uh, I was just, I was, I was rushing. Well, knock on wood, I haven't had any, any real scares yet. The only dumb thing I've done so far is nick the wing, pushing the plane back into the hangar. Hangar so rash you, is a thing. Hangar rash. It happens. <laughs> so we got to get that little cosmetic you know what my my biggest fear probably um and i shouldn't say fear i'm not like outwardly scared of it but i had a close call with a little dji drone oh really and um it's enough of a concern that the fa is doing studies on you know drone ingestion into engines drone strikes to windshields i mean you smack a hovering drone inbound in an airplane that flies at below ten thousand feet can't fly an airplane faster than 250 knots so just you take that nugget of information. So assume you're going 250 knots in a, you know, a biz jet, light jet, or, or something like that. And you smoke a, a little hovering uh, drone. I mean, you're going to cause real damage. It might not come through the windshield, like on a biz jet. I mean, biz jet windshields are inch and a half thick. They're ridiculous. But, uh, you know, some of the smaller airplanes, it certainly can. I mean, birds well, come through. Ours is like plexiglass. 
it's coming it's, through. It's safety glass. That's literally what it is. It's there's not much to it, and it would come through the windshield if you took one straight to the windshield. You're in a, a world of trouble, and um, the ones that scare me are buzzards in the takeoff. But the buzzard will try to avoid you. The buzzard drops. Yeah, from what I remember in learning, a buzzard will drop, but a hawk and an eagle will stay at the same elevation they were. Yeah, generally they. I've always noticed you know they will try to avoid you Mm -hmm. and uh, so if you just kind of hold your course you know they're generally going to move out of your way so I generally when I see them um, I kind of let them make their decision because if I go the way they want to go I might have just flown into them I have hit a bird in the Cessna by the way but the the drone thing's a little scary I was coming into Washington Missouri which is uh, hometown and it's right on the river and the river was high so just Here's a here's a tip for you. When you're flying around anything, you know, that people want to see, scenic kind of, scenic might be the wrong word. Like when we flew over the, uh, me and Nick went and flew over the uh, the tornado damage when it came through a couple years ago. You're flying over flooded rivers. That Those are things that people want to see. They want to take pictures of. So guys are out there with drones. You can't see a drone. I mean, you might think you can because it's, you know, two foot in diameter or something. But when you're buzzing along at 100 and, you know, 100, 120 miles an hour, and and you're you know the drone is lost in the horizon you know either the blue or white of clouds or whatever you don't see it till it shoots right past you and that's what happened to me coming into Washington because where you turn where you turn base which is the turn prior to final to land where you turn base in Washington is basically right over the riverfront which is a landing it's a park so guys obviously are going to park their car there and fly their drone over the river and they're checking out all the flooding well. Drone operators are, are, are just, I hate the word drone, to be honest. Any RC operators, you know, they have an obligation to stay out of the way of airplanes. There's altitude restrictions, all sorts of stuff. Most of them don't know the rules. You know, it's not like when you buy a, a, a toy drone or something that it comes with a, a pamphlet of, of uh, regulations. So a lot of these guys charge the battery, shoot that thing up as high as it goes, 3,000 feet maybe, and they start panning around on the camera. Well, here I am coming in to land. I'm looking at the runway, and all of a sudden, I see a white blob just shoot under the wing, and I mean a foot under the wing. Now, would it have hurt me or, or, or caused me to crash? No. But would it have come through the, the skin of the leaning edge of the wing? Absolutely. It would have caused some damage, and if it had come through the windshield, it would have been no good. So anyways, that's that's one of the things that I'm, I'm more concerned That's a about. good point, because I wouldn't have thought of that. If Christmas morning, I open my gift from Santa, and it's a drone. I'm not going to the FAA's website to look at any type of regulations. I'm charging that battery, and we're we're going out and letting that thing rip. Now, legally, you do have to have a license to fly a drone. Uh, it, commercially. Do you? As a hobbyist, you do not. No. As a hobbyist, you don't? No. Just you, commercially. No. You, if you wheel into... Toys R Us and go buy you a, a little drone or Best Buy, you can go out in the parking lot and fire it up and oh. go fly it around. Because I know a lot of people that have licenses similar to ours. And, and it is. There, it's a Part 107 UAS uh, license, which uh, allows you to be paid. Um, it's like a commercial license gotcha. you know, as a pilot. Did not realize. Yeah, yeah. And, but I do think it's good for people to take that you know, as an appreciation for what you're flying in. Some of the new drones, though, they're so technically advanced. If you try to even turn them on on an airport, they won't work. They know they're at an airport, and, and they won't work. I think you can override it. But, but yeah, there's actually an app. Um, you are required. If I fly an RC airplane or a, a quadcopter or whatever, um, you are required to make sure you are not within, I don't know, I think it's a five mile radius. 
maybe less than that, five mile diameter. I don't remember. But there's an app you can open and wherever you're standing, it'll show you all the closest airports to you and tell you if you're in a fly zone or not. So you go anywhere in Columbia, you can't go fly a drone technically because you're within the radius of Columbia Airport. You're within the radius of both hospital helipads. So you, you can't fire one up in Columbia. Technically, you're supposed to contact them and tell them. It's a whole thing. So it's, it's an actual concern. One of the interesting points about having an incident that people may not realize, at least in our airplane, which is a high-wing airplane, if your engine shuts down, it's not like your plane just falls out of the sky. People are always like, well, what happens if your engine breaks or if you run into a drone and it you know, stalls your engine out? Then you're a glider. So that's when they talk about elevation being your friend or altitude being your friend. The higher up you are, the more time you have to kind of coast as a glider to get to some place where you can land safely. And he picked bean field or even standing agricultural field. But I'll tell you what's scary, man, is when you get down over the Ozarks or any kind of terrain where there's nothing but, you know, broken mountainous wooded canopy and there is nowhere to put down. That's when you're like flying with a little bit more of a pucker in your butt you fly higher yeah you just go <laughs> higher yeah. yep yeah the mountains are the mountains are different and, and we don't even have big mountains you know but they're they're still uh not favorable terrain if you had to if you had to take it in and but if um, we were flying down to like gaston you know you essentially there's that line that kind of runs salem over to springfield and it's one topography until you get to that and then it just turns into these rolling hills you i've flown down to branson and you hit that line and you're like, please don't break now. Please don't break now. Please don't break now. Yeah. And, and you know, in the Ozarks, you know, I, so that's the kind of stuff I do when I'm flying on a cross country. I don't take a ton of cross country flights, you know, uh, but when I do, you know, I'm, I, I like to play that game. You know, if this happened here, what would I do? I do that all the time. Yeah. It's, it's just good practice. And um, I generally don't get down to Southern Missouri too often, but the uh, when I had the prop strike and I had to take the prop down to Arkansas, just outside of Little Rock, obviously it put me right over the Ozarks for about an hour. So going down there, I, I flew down during the day, but I was going to be coming back at night. And I don't mind flying at night. In fact, I love flying at night. It's peaceful and it's pretty. But uh, obviously, there's a added risk to it. You know, you don't know where you're landing if you get in that situation. You don't know what you're going to hit. You know what a nice clean field looks like at night. Or, or what I what I should say, uh, a big old lake looks like at night, a big clean field. You know, you can't tell the <laughs> difference. So we, um, I headed down to to, to uh, win Arkansas, and um, you know, I play that game. Where would I go? Honestly, I think I'd probably just go into a river, like a creek or a river, get down into that valley, um, and 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 take my chances with whatever trees I might find along the way. But the Cessna, I mean, you can get it so slow. I I feel like if if you had to, you'd, you'd survive it. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be in that situation out in like Rockies, you know, real mountains, you know, that's uh that's scary. But I always think if I was in the real mountains, I would try to like get the plane as slow as possible because you can get it down to 40 miles an hour or so. I mean, to where you're like equivalent to being on a BMX bike going down a really steep hill and, and just try to get clipping the top of some pine trees and, and almost like landed in the top of the trees. The plane's going to be a total loss, but maybe I'll live. That's uh, that's the argument, man. That's the, uh, the age old conversation on how, how would you take it in if you had to? Yeah. Some guys are like, I'd hard stall it in and other guys, you know, I'd fly it in and, you know, Bob Hoover, uh, 
you know, he, he crashed a lot of airplanes. He's a pretty infamous aviator for, for guys that are, you know, diehard aviation guys. It's, um, he was a test pilot, World War II, and he's just, he, he is the pilot's pilot. He is, he was a very, very cool guy. But one of the things he always said is, you know, he always flew the airplane all the way into the crash. And, um, I'm assuming what he means by that is he didn't just close his eyes and let go, you know, right. he continued to fly that airplane to every, every ounce of his ability until it came to a stop and, and he survived a lot of crashes. So I think, I think that's the thing is once you've made the decision, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in, just know that you got to fly it all the way in. I don't think I've ever told you this, but my grandfather was a world war two pilot. And that's the inspiration for me is the fact that every time we went fishing, I had to hear the same stories about flying the hump in China and all the cool shit that he did. And, um, I'm going to take you downstairs and show you something when we're done here, but it's his satchel that he carried in his airplane in world war two. And it's got his like logs and missions and all kinds of cool stuff. But just listening to him and, and the way that they flew in the forties, I mean, there was no technology essentially. It was just, it was like guys on bikes, but in the air, yeah. you know, they were just having fun. They would play hide and seek in the clouds. And he, uh, he got shot down. He flew, I think there's, I think there were C-47s. I'm not real good on my airplanes like that, but it was a cargo plane. Yeah. It's a DC-3, military version of a DC-3. And he was getting like mowed down by gunfire by some other country's plane that was just shooting him down. And he's shooting out of his window with a pistol. Ping! Ping! <laughs> and he went down in a rice field in India. And he was too afraid to like... He ran from the wreckage and hid for like four days before he would even pop his head up. And then he popped his head up and there was like a base within a mile or so in a Jeep, like picked them up and he lived through it. But really, really cool. Got some medals for it and stuff. That's awesome. I was going to ask you actually what, what your background was with how you got into it. Cause it's like, um, you know, with me, with my dad, it was, it was easy, but, uh, it's kind of like hunting, right? If you're a city slicker kid and, and all of a sudden you, you decide you want to go deer hunting and you don't have anybody in your family that does it or property or, or guns or anything else, how do you get into it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point because this is my version of that. It is. It's exactly And the way it happened for me was I would always say that someday I'm going to do it. I want to do it. Someday I'm going to do it. And I was telling it to some CFM guys one time, and they're like, well, do you know Mike Derendinger? And I'm like, no. And they're like, he was the MDC pilot, and I think he takes pilots for training and um, I know he trained Carl Edwards, the race car driver. I was like, yeah, I'd love to meet him. And I met him and he was like, do you want to go for a flight? And I said, sure. And it was like the needle to the vein, man. Was, yeah. After that, I was living under a bridge. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Though. Chasing the dragon. Chasing the dragon. <laughs> it bites you, man. It's like, it's, it's um, so fucking cool. There's no other way to explain it. Like yep. when you, the first time you solo, so you've got like, you know, 30 hours where you're up with the guy and you don't really leave the airport. You're just going up, flying the pattern landing, going up, flying the pattern landing. And I didn't know it was coming at all. And he's like, okay, this time I want you to come to a full stop. Cause you'll, when you're practicing, you'll, you know, you'll hit the runway. And as long as you're clear in communication, you can just keep going again. You, you, you hit the runway, you slow down, you bring your flaps up, which are what like they descend off the wing to help you slow down. And, um, I mean, for all of our hunting friends, an airplane is essentially like a duck 
coming into a marsh when you're landing you know you get they always land into the wind you always land your airplane into the wind if you can you put your flaps down which is like a duck cupping its wings and you let that air get caught almost in a parachute sort of way and you slow down and you land very slow so then you you're rolling and you bring your flaps up and then you just give it all the power again and you take back off so he's like i want you to come to a full stop i stop and he gets out and he's like go go ahead and i'm like what and i felt like uh bill murray in what about bob i'm "I'm flying (laughs) i'm flying i mean it's scary as shit you know and down in jeff city you got the river on one side and the bluffs on the other and you fly the bluff or fly the river and i had to fly the bluff and i mean man it was like somebody just took the handcuffs off and you're a bird for the first time in your life. It's the most free feeling. I, I, Unbelievable. That's how I tell everybody or what I tell everybody, you know, I've done all this cool stuff, you know, sports cars and sport bikes and, and, uh, and all that, but there's nothing more free than, uh, you know, when you're by yourself in an airplane, especially now that I'm into the aerobatics that, I mean, that's just, it's you doing a thing with a machine and it's just, uh, it's cool. You're definitely more of an adrenaline junkie than I am. Um, but what I have a problem with is slowing my brain down at any given point. And I've only found a few things. I, I think they have like Ritalin for people like me today, but I was old enough to where they didn't have that shit. So I had to find ways to like find a level of concentration that required a complete focus, but ultimately resulted in relaxation. Yeah. And I have found only a few things that do it. One surprisingly is fly fishing because you're in that motion. And if you lose that motion, it just all falls apart. You know, fly fishing can one minute you're, you know, Brad Pitt and a river runs through it. The next minute you're tangled up in your own line trying to figure <laughs> out what happened. Uh, skiing, downhill skiing, snowboarding on the more dangerous runs is similar. Like you obviously got to always be concentrating but at the same time, the concentration almost turns into like a zen. Yeah. Riding a motorcycle and then flying is the ultimate. Yeah. I mean, if you think about flying, I mean, very cut and dry. You mess up bad enough, you die. You know, you wreck your motorcycle, you chances are you're going to live. You wreck your car, chances are you're going to live. You wreck your airplane, chances are you're going to die. So it, it really requires like a dialed in concentration. But once you're concentrated and you're locked in then you're just a bird and it's the greatest sense of freedom I've ever felt. The The funny thing though, is like it does take concentration and obviously it takes skill, but, but like you said, there is a, a calming factor to it because it is involved. And, um, people laugh when I tell them this, you know, cause like I said, you know, now I'm into the aerobatic stuff. So I'm out there and I'm doing the loops and the rolls and, and, and everything. And that's just a, another level of aviation. You know, it's, honing new skills right but it's my stress reliever and uh people always laugh when i say that they're like how on earth can that be your stress reliever you're you know at any given time you're a a mistake away from snapping a wing off or or uh spiraling into the ground and i'm like that's that's the stress relieving part is because you know work is just in your brain and life is in your brain and you can't turn it off because i'm i'm like you you know i'll lay awake at night and Mm. you know it can't turn it off but when you're doing that that's all you get to do. You've got to focus on it. And it's that focus that lets you turn everything else off. And, and it, uh, it's, it calms me down. I, I love it. 
You guys are nuts. It was the least relaxing thing I've ever been a part of. Because <laughs> you're, you're not in control. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just had to sit there. And I'm terrified of heights. So I was yeah, just, dude, he's seven foot tall and afraid of heights. Right. Crammed yeah. in that you, thing. You're not in control. I mean, even me. You take me. I've been flying my whole life. I've been in all sorts of crazy airplanes. I do flight test work for work. You know, high risk stuff here and there. And the um, I don't even like flying commercial because I'm not in control. Now, is the guy in the front of the, the 737 a better pilot than me? I mean, he is absolutely significantly more experienced than me. Now, let me no, ask you this, no though. No doubt about it. So, you're on an airplane, and the pilot has Don't a heart attack. It. He oh, goes out. Ask it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there a pilot on the plane? Yeah. Could you do it? Could you land that plane? I think any competent pilot... Yes. I think I could. And yeah, I don't know I mean, shit compared to you. It's But if you're on the radio and a guy is like, get it to this speed, get it to this elevation. I mean, yeah, it's like getting on one yeah. kind of bike versus a different kind of bike. Or, Barring going into some crazy field. Yeah, I think I, I think most, most people would get it down and, and, and you, you're going to blow some tires, burn some brakes up, you know, maybe torch an engine or something because you didn't do something right. But yeah, would but you you're get, a hero. Are man. you going to get the airplane down? Yeah, you'll get the airplane. Metallica just starts playing hero of the day. You're just like, I did it. I, I mean, saved I, all these lives. Outside of the complexity of the systems, the airplane still flies like an airplane. Right. You know, it's, it's just, just a bigger. Airplane. It's just bigger. It's like driving a, driving a bus instead of a, a pickup truck. You know, it's just. Slower. What was that Denzel Washington movie where he landed it like upside down and saved everyone's That's while ridiculous. he was drunk, <laughs> while he was drunk, but Sully landing Sully. on the Hudson. That mm-hmm. was real. That, that was, was real. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, there's a, a pretty good joke that runs around on the internet on some of the forums. That's uh, you know, uh, when you get on, when you get on a commercial flight, do you, uh, do you tell the pilot that you're a pilot and, uh, I've obviously never done it because that's absurd, but there's guys that do it as a joke. There's even, there's even guys that have business cars that are made up that, you know, in case of emergency, I'm a pilot, you know, kind of thing. It's ridiculous, but it's funny. You hand the pilot a set of wings. Right. Right. <laughs> hey, just or, so you know, I'm in row 36 and I am uh, qualified to fly a 172. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think I've ever shown you that. Those are my uh, grandpa's wings. I'm showing awesome. them a tattoo. Yeah. My grandpa's wings from World War II. I, I carried them with me during all of my flight training. Never had a problem. Still, have, thankfully, never had a close call. So I just went ahead and got them tattooed on my arm, and I carry those World War II wings with me everywhere I go. That's one of the things that's kind of cool with aviation too. Is like there's a lot of nostalgia that goes with it, a lot of yeah stuff like that. You know, you've got a you've got a, a trinket of you know a thing. It's just kind of neat. All right, before we get you out of here, we end every podcast with what we call the mystery bait bucket, which is just random questions submitted by anyone. Really, you can submit a question, uh, info at driftwoodoutdoors.com through email or slip into our DMs, as the kids say, on Facebook or Instagram. So if you'll reach into that piece of Americana in front of you, pull out the question, uh, read who it's from and what it is, and we'll all go around and answer it. All right. With the colder weather we've been having, what's the coldest you've ever been, and what are the circumstances to it? Josh Lane. Montana is one of those places where everybody attributes it to cold, but it's really like anywhere else in the country. Like there's little intermittent bursts of cold, but most of the time it's pretty mild. One time in Montana on the High Line, uh, which is like the Canadian border of Montana. I was up there in my pharmaceutical sales days. I had a 12-pack of Diet Coke 
in my vehicle that I was going to use for one of my pharmaceutical lunches, which is really all you are as a pharmaceutical rep is somebody that carries lunches in to nurses that are unappreciative. And uh, I left it in the car overnight and I came out the next morning and it had exploded like a bomb. Mm. I mean, top of the vehicle, the whole thing coated in frozen diet Coke. So it like it exploded and froze on impact. It looked like you were in a diet Coke cave. And I think it was like negative 60 without the wind chill. I mean, it was ridiculously cold to where if you took a breath, your nose hair is just crystallized instantly. So that's the coldest cold I've ever experienced. I mean, I played college basketball in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, no, don't you know. So it gets really cold up there. I got introduced to tunnels. I'd never even thought about tunnels under a university, but we got there in the spring before school started and I was like what's this tunnel system about and then you get it's the only state I've ever been in where they have this winter weather advisory where they they literally tell you you cannot be outside for longer than 90 minutes or you will die because it's it gets that cold but the coldest like the the coldest I remember getting personally I was winter steelhead fishing back home on the Klaskanai River in my small little town and I was walking this bank uh, hugging the riverside because it was a bob wire fence and it was private property on the other side and I was younger in my late 20s and a little bit more of a risk taker I probably shouldn't have been on the lip there wasn't much room to walk around it and I didn't want to trespass because it was a crazy old crazy old man that would rumors he'd shoot you with rock salt if he caught you on the property so I'm I'm on the the water side the bank gives out i fall into the river fill up my waders and it was just adrenaline and shock that i had enough power and energy to pull myself up back out of the river and i had to walk a couple of miles back to the car just completely soaked in the winter freezing just like trying to give yourself a pep talk like just one step at a time man you can make it you can make it and that was like the coldest i personally ever remember being it was a scare. Dude, it scared me. It was a close call. Man, I don't even have a good story. I, uh, you know, there's only one thing that really stands out where you get home and you got those chills so bad you you can't even stop for hours, kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. I was probably ten, eleven years old, and I did exactly what I wasn't supposed to do. And I walk out on a frozen lake and I punch through the ice. Oh, and been there. And we're probably, I don't know, a mile from my buddy's place, and. Um, we're just kids went down a trail and ended up at this big lake and thought it'd be cool to walk out on the ice. And what you don't realize is the ice gets thin against docks and stepped out on it, went right through it all the way up to my neck. Thank goodness I didn't go under it. You have to deal with that. But then having to walk home about a mile soaked and it's 20s, 15, I don't know. That was probably mine, but it, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't even come. I, I went through guys. the ice like that when I was similar age, 10, 11, we were playing hockey and we were playing in a cove. So thankfully it was really shallow but i remember like falling and coming down on my butt and breaking through and just going down like on my back and my butt and that i can feel it now like i can feel that ice breaking giving away then you just it's like what's that movie where they're like just stand up (laughs) and i I stood up i'm like i'm i'm dying okay i'm standing it's like that stephen king book that got turned into a movie with christopher walken the dead zone where he's like the ice but i remember my uncle lance when we were when i was a kid hunting with him in the late season we would do a lot of late season bow hunting and i remember him like going and do the tree stand with uh red wings on and just like light coveralls and thinking like what a man, what a machine. 
And I'd be, he'd be like, whatever you do. And this again is when I'm like 12. He's like, whatever you do, do not get out of this tree stand until I come get you. And this is Northern Indiana, basically like South Chicago, right on Lake Michigan, zero degrees out. And I am laying on the bottom of my tree stand, like in the fetal position, trying to stay alive until he gets there. And, and today I, I'm the guy in the coldest weather in jeans and, you know, red wings. And uh, I don't know. Thank you, uncle Lance for making a man out of me. I can tell you. Manly man. And I know Josh listens religiously, but my favorite time that I've been cold, I think was that first deer camp at your cabin before there was insulation and before there was really anything in there where we literally slept in our hunting gear because it was so cold in that little, just a shell of a a cabin. That is funny because Hal Herring, Hal Herring came down under the first time in maybe January or something. He had his dog with him and Hal lives in Northern Montana by Augusta. And he said, inside my cabin is the coldest he's ever been in. It was (laughs) was so cold that his dog, his dog, like, went into the bottom of his sleeping bag to stay alive. It was just so funny to see all of us, like, shivering in there, putting our hunting gear on, sleeping with bibs and everything, and then waking up and was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just ready to head right to the woods. I should have shared one of those heaters with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's our, our final co- our, our final thoughts, the final cast of the podcast? I think there's a lot of misconception around becoming a private pilot. It, it, it's not cheap. It's not easy. But like anything that's worth doing, it's worth doing it. And if you, if you look for ways to cut costs, like I did in buying into this club, I got lucky, but it was there. Um, you can do it for five grand or whatever. And then it's a lifetime skill. Now you got to stay current. You got to... You got to do things to stay up to date, but it's a lifetime experience and it's just one of the coolest things. And uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, just being able to say I'm a pilot drink is one of the coolest, (laughs) coolest things you can say. Well, I'm not going to lie. When you told me this was what the podcast was going to be this week, I was kind of like, what? How are we going to talk about this for 90 minutes? But I've been sitting here just fascinated hearing your stories. And I found it really cool you making the comparison because trying to wrap my head around the idea of like airport bums. Oh, that's like a completely different world to me. I would have never crossed my mind like that was that's a culture. Yeah. But like like you said, I just grew up on the Columbia River and we were river bums. I and mean, I, we, same thing. it's the exact same, same, thing. same thing. It's feel, so cool. I feel bad because he he desperately wants our airport to be cool, like that one in Creve Corps, and he tries hard. And I I need to like go and hang out once in a while, but it's just like the fifth their sixth thing down my list, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, I put a couch, that old um, leather couch that I have, that sectional, I put that in our hangar thinking I'll go out there and grill and hang out once in a while, but I just haven't got there. And yet. that's what those guys do. And, and it is, it is a community. And to build on that, you know, you're talking about getting into it, you know, for your listeners that might be interested in it, that want to do it, but don't know how to do it. Obviously with the internet now, you just Google flight schools or, or local flight training or anything like that. Or second, drive out to some of the smaller airports. I mean, everybody thinks of an airport as like LAX and St. Louis, Kansas City, you know, the big airports. That's the last place I'd want to train. That's a great point. Let me interrupt you real quick because I don't think many people have any idea. How many small airports are there? Exactly. I didn't know there was one in Fulton. Almost every county. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Almost every county has one. I, I would say darn near every real municipality has one. Yeah. And, um, now not everyone's going to have flight training. But you can at least go out there, and if you see an open hangar door, 
I mean, excluding the occasional crotchety old man, most of those guys are going to sit there and talk aviation like we just mm-hmm. did, you know, and, and and love it and tell you everything about, oh, you need to go here. You need to talk to this guy. Don't go here. You know, they got a junk airplane. You're going to learn so much. Just show up to an airport and go ask some questions. I mean, don't get um, discouraged by, you know, the the I don't want to say no trespassing signs because obviously you should follow the rules. But, you know, there's a lot of signage at airports. But be courteous and, and, and ask questions and, and, and find your way into the right areas and talk to people. And, um, you know, most of the guys are willing to learn. You know, I took a kid. There was a kid sitting out of Fulton Airport one day and uh, he was out there studying. He kind of like me. He just liked being around airplanes. You just study and watching airplanes. He's like, oh, I've never been in a aerobatic airplane. I'm like, well, let's go, man. Yeah. And the guy giggled like a schoolgirl, you know, the whole time, you know, because I took him. Yeah, you know, I did a couple of rolls in a loop, and I'm like, that's the stuff I live for. You know, taking people <laughs> up, experiencing that. And there's a lot of guys that are like that in aviation that just want to share it with with the next generation or even the uh, someone that's never done it. Just here in mid Missouri, and this is pretty much replicable across the country like right here in mid-missouri columbia jeff city fulton mexico moberly macon kirksville boonville warrensburg lake of the ozarks rolla all of them have airports we've got 10 airports in 50 miles yeah wow easy and people have no idea and they're all municipal paid for i mean your tax dollars are paying for them so like when we go land at any other airport we don't have to pay you don't have to pay to land you don't have to pay to keep your plane there overnight you just pay for fuel and then you keep going. Pretty but, cool. But yeah, if people are seriously interested in it, you Google it uh, or you drive out to the airport and you ask questions and don't be afraid of it. And uh, the people, most of the people are super inviting. And I mean, you can't go out there and go, take me for a ride. Yeah. But I'm willing to bet you express enough serious interest. Most guys are going to take you for a ride. But one other quick thing I'll add to that. There's, there's a thing out there through the EA, which is Experimental uh, Aviation Association or Aircraft Association. And um, they do a thing called Young Eagles and Eagles. If you find a local EAA chapter, especially if you're a kid, Young Eagles, 8 to 17 years old, but even adults as Eagles, you can get a hold of your EAA chapter and say, hey, I'd really like to get into flying. And if they do these Eagle flights, the whole intention is to take you on a free flight. It's a, you know, it's a, uh, an entry flight, if you will, to, to try to get people interested in it. And... Um, you know, so the EA is a great, great resource, and um, it's uh, it's it's the coolest thing I've ever done, and and by far my my favorite thing to do in my spare time. Appreciate you stopping by the podcast, man. This has been really informative and and a lot of fun. Gear review coming up next. I'm a pilot. <laughs> Drink. Time for the Driftwood Outdoors gear review. It's the end of the podcast, but the beginning of the gear review. Brandon, what are you reviewing for us today? Well, since I got called out on my uh, my beverage during the show, I thought I'd go ahead and review uh, my Gaston's whiskey glass. Nothing real special about it, except for the fact that every time I pick it up, it makes me happy to read the Gaston's logo. I've talked about Gaston's on and off throughout these podcasts. We talked about it a lot in this podcast. It's just one of my absolute favorite places in the country and i can't wait for us to have a place down there uh every once in a while i'll pick up a souvenir when i was down there last time i picked up this nice logoed whiskey glass and uh you know it takes me back to being on the white river so you know next time you go down to gaston's get yourself glass uh might be having a bad day you look at that and you think you know 
pretty soon I'll be down there fishing again. And we will be in a couple of weeks. Two weeks, baby. With my gear review, I'm reviewing another Christmas gift. Uh, Savannah's aunt and uncle, my soon-to-be uh, in- so spoiled. in-laws. So spoiled. I know, right? Dude, this is so convenient. It's got a funny name. It's called a battery daddy. But it's like a tackle box for your batteries. You can just stack them all in there because how many people just have drawers filled with loose batteries and when you need one, like I need a double A and then all you find are triple A's in one, one drawer and then you got to go look for another junk drawer. This is legitimately a plastic hard case with a handle that organizes every battery. It comes with a battery tester. It's very reasonably priced. It's like 20 bucks at uh, Walmart or even on Amazon. And I never thought... In my life, I'd be so excited to get something to do with batteries, but Battery Daddy is where it's at. Still not cooler than my shotgun plunger my dad got me. (laughs) I can still hear him laughing giving you that gift. We'll see you down the trail. Early mornings, long nights, cold, heat, wind, and so many other factors can stand between a sportsman and the trophy they're pursuing. That's why it's so gratifying when it all comes together. To preserve that special memory, sportsmen often turn to a taxidermist. At Driftwood Outdoors, we turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy in Salem, Missouri. Larry and Heath have mounted six bucks for us in the last four years, and every one of them looks awesome. These guys are true artists and experts at deer and elk, but can handle all your taxidermy needs from fish to birds to bears. For a taxidermy experience you can trust, turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy. Visit them online at scenicriverstaxidermy.com or find them on Facebook, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy. At Driftwood Outdoors, we're real proud to partner with Hunt to Eat to bring you some cool t-shirts depicting our love of all things outdoors. Honestly, there's nothing cooler than to be doing this podcast and then seeing people wear our shirt, which is an amazing, super cool shirt of a gravel bar campsite. If you want to get your own Driftwood Outdoors t-shirt, check out the merch section on our website, driftwoodoutdoors.com, or visit Hunt to Eat at Hunt to eat.com and pick up the Driftwood Outdoors Gravel Bar t-shirt today. 